Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week I will have Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams as we discuss the second half of Ambrose's De Ophiciis. Um, the first half of that conversation we had with my friend Drew Harmon, so I suggest that everyone go back and uh, listen to that conversation. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're going to be talking a little bit through uh, what Ambrose has to say um, about virtue and how that connects to classical notion of virtues. And actually towards the end, we even have a little conversation about uh, slavery and how um, Ambrose gave a sort of uh, mitigated argument for the church to manumit slaves, to um, free the slaves. And then that actually occasioned us to think about other cases in the patristic period, in the early church period, where uh, preachers and pastors thought about slavery. So this week we're going to be um, recording a conversation on Gregory of Nyssa's argument against slavery. So be looking forward to that. Um, before I close up this little introduction, I would just like to say thank you to Brian Better. Um, he is a new patron, so we appreciate that. Um, and we would also encourage any of you all um, who are listening to this podcast and who appreciate the content that we bring, um, if you would uh, find our Patreon account, um, I will put a link up to it with this episode. Um, and please consider donating even just $2, um, and that would cover the costs of this podcast based on the number of uh, followers that we have on Facebook. If everyone paid that amount, um, you could cover our costs and uh, and cover someone else who can't afford uh, to support us. So $2 is what we're asking um, from, from each person, um, and uh, that way you cover one listener. Um, we have more downloads than that. We get sometimes near 2,000 downloads an episode, uh, but about 500 people who like us and follow us closely on Facebook. So um, if you would, please consider giving. We would appreciate it. Also, I'd like to thank Lauren McCaffrey. Uh, Lauren McCaffrey wrote in on our Facebook page and said um, how this has really helped her. This podcast has helped her think about um, her um, her family and their different perspectives on Roman Catholicism. Um, and and her is growing up more non-denominational, um, and, and she married into a Catholic family. So she feels like this podcast helps bring conversation between these two different um parts of, of the larger Christian world. And so that's, uh, it was a real, it was really nice to hear from her. Um, so please uh, write in, let us know what you think of the podcast. What do you think of the interviews um, and, uh, and any other, um, any other suggestions that you might have for us. So we really, we really do appreciate that. So without further ado, uh, we launch right into our conversation on Ambrose. Um, and Tom uh, is the first one talking and he's going to lead us in. It's a little lackluster, but I promise the conversation is worth it. Even if uh, we struggled a little bit uh, getting excited about the large part of Ambrose's argument. Uh, but thank you for listening. It was it was just so uninteresting i mean that was all <laughs> it was just like i was just like I, I don't even know how to describe it i mean he's talking about the virtues i guess how there were several times when i was essentially looking at it thinking i don't really know what he's saying here but i mm. didn't want to put in the effort to reread and try to figure out what he was saying and i know i did that thing that i'm sure many of you guys or i'm sure you guys have done which is you start your mind starts wandering while you're reading. Yep. So then I've got mm -hmm. a whole clip I didn't read because my eyes looked at the words, but I was thinking about something else. Uh, and I just didn't want to put the effort to go back in and reread those paragraphs. I just it just was not fun for me. Uh, and I don't know if that's because my ADD is getting worse because I'm on social media. 
seven hours a day and I watch, you know, 420 movies a year or something, or if it's just that this is really not fun reading. Uh, but that was, <laughs> um, maybe it's a combination of both, <laughs> but I just could not get into him. You know, just couldn't do it. All right. All right. Well, so we broadly, <laughs> we have established um, that Ambrose is difficult to read. Now it's, you know, so it's sort of interesting to me that like we even had this like in the last, so I would recommend that anyone who is listening to this podcast, go back to the first one that we've done on Ambrose if you haven't. Um, and we interviewed a friend of mine who got his uh, doctorate at Marquette on Ambrose. So we had him on the podcast where we talked specifically about this book. We didn't get all that far. Um, but I felt like we brought out some really interesting aspects of the whole life of Ambrose. So sometimes I think as we go through this project of like, you know, what we conceived of it five years ago, which was reading through the church fathers, reading through it. Well, we wanted, you know, we said the whole history, excuse me, of a Christian theology, which of course is an overly ambitious ambitious project but the fun of it was we're just going to read through what is there um and try to say what can we glean what can we learn and I, you know one of the things that i th i think even i you know i was able to get through it but um i'm a little more used to reading some of this stuff but even i recognized straight away i was like i mean all he's doing is recapitulating what cicero said but giving biblical examples um, like he's just drinking so deep, um, from, you know, broadly platonic and Aristotelian ideals as just well, I think he actually read the Greek, so he probably has some familiar of them in the original sources, but he also is clearly responding to Cicero's De Ficis, um, as in the title. So it's just in a, like, it's just a bit where you go, yeah, you can see why we didn't include Ambrose in say, uh, the great books collection. Like there's a reason Augustine was in the great books collection, but not Ambrose. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, although to be honest, I mean, I've always felt like the great books collection is, eh, I, I feel like the people curating that weren't necessarily like, I don't know. I, I, I just feel like there was a, what's what I'm looking for? A little bit of, um, luck in getting in there luck is okay. a good word yeah uh it, it, i don't know i mean there's some works that obviously are going to get in the iliad the odyssey is going to get in the um uh you know you're going to have plato's republic but there there definitely comes a moment when you're like well they're making certain choices and not making others and i'm not really sure exactly why i think you just made a good point but i just don't know that mortimer adler and the guys who put together the great books are necessarily expert enough i guess to tell us what are sure. or aren't the great books but sure. i mean fair point you made i mean your point was fairly taken i'm sure that that was something along the lines of what they were thinking i've just always had this kind of like uh distrust of that collection to a certain degree and maybe it's just because of the way people talk about it at my place of employment as if it's canon <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know people well, that's like, oh, that's not one of the great books. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so. Um, well, so maybe, I mean, that, I brought out the great books in part, yeah, Tom, because we all met at a school that sort of at least loosely um, affiliates itself with the great books movement. Um, it's yeah. not precisely a great book school, but, you know, we learn, learn, want to learn a lot from Mortimer Adler and those books that were chosen. So, yeah, fair point. Um, I, I, but, well, and even we could say, too, I mean, I guess... Uh, 
Ambrose Deificiis was read some in the mid medieval period, but even in terms of his foundation for medieval debate um, is pretty limited. Um, so even when we think about like what medieval theologians, Aquinas, Hugh of St. Victor, Abelard, other, you know, they're not drawing that deep um, from Deificiis. So maybe by even maybe a better measurement would be to say, um, you know, how was he received and in, in what some people sort of call the medieval medieval syllabus. Um, so Cassiodorus and in his institutes doesn't talk that long about Ambrose. Like, oh yeah, Ambrose, you know, he might have some things to contribute here and there. Um, and he's Orthodox, but that's not like, he's not leaning on Ambrose in the same way that Cassiodorus leans on other sources. Oh, that's a good point. Um, so I think that might be one way to like put it even, maybe even a little bit more in his contexts. Uh, at some point I would love to, for us to just read Cassiodorus's, um, uh, the Institutes of Divine and Secular Learning, just because it's a it's a fascinating way to see the so like talking about sort of trajectories. Like I am kind of broadly interested in this uh, idea and question that Tom just brought out. Why do we read the things that we read? What are the things that become the most foundational? So one way to do this was the great books and Mortimer Adler, um, and but another way is to say, well, okay, what becomes important for uh, medieval theology and even and then by extension reformation theology and there's no better way to think about that than cassidorus's divine institutes uh, or well the institutes of divine and secular learning because um once uh, once there was a after the um barbarian invasions of the empire that splits basically uh, the 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 western roman side from the byzantine eastern side um, you don't have a knowledge of much Greek and you have a limited access to sources. Um, and what they have in large part is what Cassiodorus collected. Um, and so that's what becomes, you know, read the most often uh, until the Greek works come back in from Aristotle. Um, so he's sort of an interesting way to think about what becomes influential and why it's influential. Um, and yeah, anyway, I'll stop there. Hmm. <clears throat> interesting. Hmm, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not super familiar with Cassiodorus's work. Um, uh, one thing I would just, and this isn't really pushback because I think I agree with you entirely. It's more of like, uh, what does this mean in the context of what you just said? But just how yeah. Ambrose early on is regarded as, you know, he's he's given the moniker of one of the four doctors of the church, right? The other the other three being Jerome, Augustine, and then. Um, uh, Clem, uh, Clement the first. Yeah. No, not Clement. Is it Gregory? Gregory the first. Sorry. Yeah. Gregory the great. Yeah. So those guys are given the moniker of the four doctors of the church, at least the Western doctors, because the Eastern have their own, the Eastern half of the church has its own kind of four great doctors. Um, but just wondering in that context, what, why Ambrose was included in that bunch and, um, what that means. I mean, maybe it is just because of Augustine's praise of him. Yeah, I mean, my thought would be Augustine's praise and I mean, he does write. I mean, we have a number of his sermons. There's a number of his writings mm -hmm. um, that, that are kind of um, that are important. I mean, he um, I but even even still, like I struggle to find like so like one thing uh, and, and maybe we can get into some of the stuff that I found in here. And this is this is more of an argument from absence. But one interesting thing about what wasn't in Ambrose 
um, is so this is not answering your question, uh, I guess. Now that you're thinking about it, uh, so well, why was he? Why was he included in one of these four? I mean, I think he was influential. I think he was more influential structurally. Um, so I think that sort of his place in ecclesiology as the bishop of Milan, which was the center of the empire at the time. Um, and I think like his, his, uh, like the way that he stood up to Theodosius, um, his stand for, um, Nicaea, I think that like, you know, whether or not his writings were all that interesting, so to speak, I think his just sort of role, it not only in, um, tutoring Augustine in a way, uh, but, but in just standing for orthodoxy and standing sort of as a, in a place of authority against sort of secular powers. Um, my, my thought would be he has that kind of role that's more important and maybe less uh, the depth of his theology. So does that make sense? Absolutely. And in fact, I was, the moment I even asked the question, I thought of what he did with Theodosius. Um, uh, just, which again, for those, who are listening, just a reminder to check our last podcast. But I mean, in a sense, I mean, Ambrose uh, really sets the stage for church authority over political authority by excommunicating Theodosius and basically forcing Theodosius to do penance, um, which kind of really elevates the church. So I, I thought of that immediately when you when I asked the question. So I think maybe that really that that does answer the question pretty well. And one thing that I noticed, and and this is something that we maybe will get back to in Augustine at some point, he talks all about virtue, but I noticed that grace is basically a word that does not come into his lexicon. Huh. Um, and so it's sort of like he is talking about all of this aspiring to virtue and how the scriptures teach virtue, what virtue is, how it fits in sort of uh, the place of justice or, you know, well, and the four, the four virtues, the cardinal virtues. Um, and, um, but he really and rarely talks about the place of grace, which, you know, one thing that, one thing that Ambrose does is sort of highlight why Augustine's writings were so powerful when they came out because of course Augustine leans on grace like no one else ever had and he's you know he is the doctor of grace um and so you you know it sort of it sort of makes sense in a way why when you read Augustine um if like if you go through him chronologically with the church or with the history um you say yeah he really did just like blow up um uh the the Mediterranean with his doctrine of grace because it just didn't exist or not. It didn't exist. It was in Paul, uh, but it wasn't emphasized in the same way. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That is interesting. And I mean, I, I hadn't given a thought to it, so I'd, I'll have to process that. I mean, I of course noticed his talk on virtue because that, well, I mean, that's what the whole thing really seems to be about. Right. Um, but yeah, I hadn't given thought to that. I wonder what, what led to that development with Augustine? I mean, do you have any, you're the uh, you're the guy who's done the research on Augustine. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Sure. Well, <laughs> I of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> so tell us, Chad, what are your thoughts on? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, but I, I, okay. So I mean, Augustine sort of famously develops his. It really. Um, really explores grace at the at the end of the 300 so around 397 398 he writes a letter to the successor of ambrose who's called simplicianus um and he's reading paul and he starts to say hey look grace this thing that god gives us this thing that god does in us 
um, as as understood through Romans and First Corinthians. Um, this this is what makes it so that Christians can be virtuous. Um, and so you know, like the to me the difference is is like. Uh, Ambrose just describes what virtue is and sort of says that we have these exemplars um, and kind of we could talk about sort of ancient virtue theory. But Augustine starts to say, yeah, all that's fine and good, but you have a will to do or not do these things. And until you get that will um, uh, uh, freed by grace to do the good, it doesn't matter how much we talk about virtue. Mm-hmm. Um and so we can talk about virtue all day. You can have all these exemplars, um, but if you don't have um, the power of grace given by the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to enact these virtues. Um, and so, um, I mean, there's a lot of academic work that's done about where grace fits in in the early Augustine and the late Augustine. And by the end of his life, Augustine, you know, every page is about grace. Um, um, but he's reacting um like is his a reaction against pelagius or is it just more study of all or so my argument actually is that this become so 397 is before pelagius almost i mean about 15 years uh before pelagius comes on the scene he's already saying man grace is what we need and we're not going to be able to do it without it I mean, it's Paul. Like, I mean, it's just straight, like, he's just right. reading through Romans and 1 Corinthians and going, man, I don't think we can do this on our own. Huh. So he's, like, literally just reading the Bible, which is something that maybe some of his forebears weren't quite paying as much attention to. I mean, they were reading the Bible, obviously. They knew the, the scripture really well, but just must have just not lighted on or landed on that those particular texts. Maybe it was just an area of focus or something. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, and, and the broader question that we could ask here is, and, and I think it's a question that people are asking um, uh, in, in in different ways. Well, I don't know. I mean, pe- we <laughs> some of the podcasts, which we will release probably shortly, have been a little bit more just topically focused, <laughs> um, yeah. to, to put it broadly. Um, but it, it's sort of like, in what way should we take things from the culture and appropriate them, and how does the Bible interact with sort of ideas in the culture? Um, and what I see in Ambrose is he's trying to figure out how to read the Bible, which has these Jewish icons, David and others, um, Abraham. How do we look at those uh, from you know sort of our uh, our Greco-Roman worldview? How, and what do we what do we see in them that's the same? And so he tries to blend them with Cicero in this way and say like, well, they exemplify some of these virtues we see in Cicero. So in what ways are they just receiving um, the scriptures in their worldview? And in what ways is the are the scriptures critiquing that worldview? Um, and it, like and so humility plays some role for Ambrose and and that's not really a virtue from the Greco-Roman world. So that's one way in which he reads the scriptures and he says, "Hey, humility is important." Um and and I don't think that that's emphasized um in the Greco-Roman tradition. That said, he you know, he pretty much says he gives uh the the Ciceronian and the Aristotelian definition of virtue that is giving everyone their due. Um he talks about the four cardinal virtues, he talks about the great the the the, the golden mean. Um, he's just using lots of these ideas that are in Platonic philosophy um, in in this work. 
but but he's he sort of but he exemplifies those in the scriptural text and it you know i mean i guess you could call this eisegesis i think that may be a little unfair but reading something into the text Mm -hmm. um that's not there but that's kind of the question and that's i think it's the question that we're always asking um which is how do we balance sort of being critiqued by scripture, but necessarily recognizing that we are all speaking from a point of view and from, we are all in a culture one way, whether we like it or not, there is no the culture out there in that sense. Like we're all swimming in the culture to some degree. Well, Um, except for 19, except for American evangelicals from the years 1940 to 1990, those guys, they were able to completely divorce themselves from from their culture and just read the scripture as it is. I kind of wonder about that though. If that's <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's you know I'm being sarcastic and ironic, right? Uh, yeah. No, I know you're I know you're being sarcastic. Yeah, but it's it's like the the strain well, cause there is a real way in which of course like that period tried to create like its own culture, but of course it was still just influenced by the culture. I even think, funnily enough, things like the Ken Ham's Creationist Museum are like being overly influenced by like a super rationalist scientific culture, for example, because they found the need to like make it consistent with data and all this. So yeah, I mean, basically for any movement in Christianity, you can point at examples that even if they seem countercultural, you'll notice that they're definitely still inspired by the spirit of that age in some way oh, um, sure. or affected by it. And I was, I was kind of wondering whether or not like pre, I, I mean, I don't, it can't be this easy to, to do, but I always wondered if sort of there was just the pre Augustine um, focus on sort of more focus on the practice and then and less on the grace and then just post augustine it's all of a sudden grace and practice both because it does seem like given the you know christianity's jewish roots you would still find even with you know the gentile converts that the first couple generations of the church would still be more familiar with religions based in practice and thus focus more on right practice um but i'm sure i mean i'm sure there was more of a i could just because history is more complicated i mean there's got to be of course some folks who were that probably you know about chad who were at least trickling in grace at certain points throughout but then we got augustine that kind of just famously solidified it or something all that talk about practice sounds like a true Episcopalian there, uh, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, <laughs> I wasn't trying to say it from my point of view. It's just that <laughs> there, there certainly is like, I mean, most religions just in the world, you know, certainly focus on practice. And it wouldn't surprise me that in like the first couple generations of the church, that wouldn't have been a um, focus and hence why virtues are attractive right because in general virtues are practice 
Um, well, and that's what we haven't read City of God yet, um, and God willing, we'll spend three years on that. Um, <laughs> I um, hope we can get through it in three years. That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but what part of what Augustine even demonstrates in that landscape is there are things that are called religion, and there are things that well that are sort of broadly called religion, religio, the thing that binds in the Ciceronian definition, but. Um, but basically what Christians were imitating wasn't only or wasn't restricted to what we might sort of see as um, like uh, cultish and um, related to the deities, like the, um, you know, like the sacrificing to the gods and telling the stories of the gods. There wasn't the sense of imitating your life um, after the patterns of the gods. The, so if you wanted to think about how you should live your life, what the philosophers, you know, from from. Uh, Plato onwards called ethics, right? So um, that is what you should be doing. What what it, what are you doing with your life? And that became the purview of philosophers. Um, and so there was a sense in which what Augustine and what Christians did was say, "Hey, all of this stuff is connected." Um, and and so what you do when you go to watch a play. Um, and what you, which are often done um, in in either imitation of the gods or and also in sort of worship of those gods, that's connected to what you do with your daily life um, and how you act and 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 then but like sort of in the ancient kind of broader um, uh, worldview was well the philosophers talk about how you act and what you're up to and what is the good life and what you should be about um but they don't you know they tended to reject the gods or not really talk about so much um you know uh the kind of practice of religion um and so you have this like i mean in some ways a lot of the ancient philosophical schools were something almost closer to what we would call psychology or um you know something like living your best life now <laughs> um, um but 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 it was actually christianity that said all of this stuff is interconnected in ways in which you don't see like augustine keeps saying to them do you not see that all of your gods rape um, and then you get mad when people do you actually, you know, do you not see that you also rape and also do these awful things? And do you not see that what you worship changes who you are um, and how you act? And so, like, it's sort of like Augustine says, like, hey, all this stuff is 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 closer together. Um, but yeah, anyway. OK, interesting. Yeah, I was because I was kind of thinking of the the old philosophical way is also thinking of a practice, but just literally in the most abstracted away from a belief system type of way because the point well you're still you're still uh, dedicating yourself to some sort of belief system because you're giving value to certain things thus you form your own conception of what you think the good life is and then you act accordingly but um and so i was thinking that you had to cultivate or you had to um undergo certain practices in order to cultivate the good life. But I see what you're saying in, in the way that you, you sort of set up the dichotomy. There was instead in their, in their minds, kind of the dichotomy that you just set up, which I hadn't really thought of before. Um, so that makes sense. Hey, I'm just rehashing Augustine. <laughs> and it's appropriate that we should be doing so given that we're talking about ambrose <laughs> <laughs> well yeah and he just he just gives the standard virtue stuff right yes yes which we should talk a little bit about the standard virtue stuff more 
talk a little more about the standard virtue stuff. Um, okay. Well, what 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 do you mean? So say what are you what are you saying? Well, I mean, we've said standard virtue stuff. I'm just wondering. I can't. Unfortunately, I have to admit, I, it's been a while since I listened to our last podcast. I do. Hmm. Uh, um, of course, remember us uh, talking about uh, Ambrose and his submission or uh, his domination, I guess, if you will, of Theodosius. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't recall what all we talked about in the text, and I'm not sure to what degree our audiences uh, are aware of, you know, what we're calling traditional virtue stuff. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what that is and and some of the stuff he says about it. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Trevor, I mean, I've been talking a lot. I was going to offer uh, anybody else that, tre- I mean, uh, when, when Trevor, when you think of uh, traditional sort of ancient virtue theory, what are you thinking of? Well, obviously I first think of Aristotle, um, because that's just sort of, if you teach Phil 101, that's just how you teach your students. Um, but of course virtues were just sort of a thing that actually from my understanding like all the ancient greek philosophers were kind of interested in but um of course aristotle gets sort of just associated with virtue ethics and so you teach your you teach your students kant and uh mill and aristotle (laughs) (laughs) and you go here's three types of ethics um but I, I think of, I, I think of the parts that I like about it, of course, because I also think of the ways in which virtue ethics is actually useful. So I associate it with um, the things I like to tell my students, which is, uh, you should form good habits. Aristotle actually, he kind of actually talks about forming these habits like when you're a child. Um, more so than as an adult, technically. Um, but, you know, we know now you can obviously still form habits as an adult. And so everything he says about it is still sort of applicable uh, to us. And that is to f- basically literally practice the things that you want to um, uh, hold as a character trait, the things that you which that there, there alone, we, that sort of is the root of like the classical idea of virtue ethics is the idea that you have a character and you have a character trait, which is, and you have character traits, which is technically a contested idea. Some people will think, no, everyone will just act a certain way if they're put in the, the same context. There is no such thing as a character trait, but, um, but if you have this idea that like there's honest people, people who like sort of will want to tell the truth um, more often than not, something like that, then it's in theory like a virtue that you could practice. And that was kind of the idea the ancients had. So that's what I think of when I think of the classical virtues. <laughs> yeah, I'd add, I'd add a couple of things. Um, uh, I think... One thing I'd like to read a little section from chapter 45 of book one, okay. um, which is on what is noble and virtuous and what the difference between them is, as stated both in the profane and sacred writers. And so this is going to be uh, section 228 and 229. Mm-hmm. Um, and in section 228, I'll just go with like a, 
a, a, a distinction he makes that I think is interesting where he distinguishes between the virtuous and the seemly. Okay. For what is seemly is also virtuous and what is virtuous is seemly so that the distinction lies rather in the words than in the things themselves, that there is a difference between them. We can understand, but we cannot explain it to make an, uh, then chapter uh, section 229 to make an attempt to get some sort of distinction between them. We may say that what is virtuous may be compared to the good health and soundness of the body. Well, what is seemly as, as it were, comeliness and beauty and as beauty seems to stand above soundness and health and yet cannot exist without them nor be separated from them anyway for unless one has good health one cannot have beauty and comeliness so what is virtuous contains in itself also what is seemly so as it as to seem to start with it and to be unable to exist without it so i'm restating that he makes this distinction between comeliness and or sorry with virtue and seemly, uh, the virtue and the seemly. And he makes a comparison to the body, and he says, uh, a body needs to be healthy to be beautiful. Health and beauty are not the same thing, but you can't be beautiful if you don't have health, is kind of more or less what he's saying. And so too with virtue, he says um, a person who is virtuous uh, is going to be seemly in their behavior. That is... And seemly, I assume he means something like um, their their behavior will seem appropriate in um, society. Uh, and so he's saying, and later on he'll make the distinction that uh, virtue is going to be internal and seemliness external. So you could have basically seemly looking uh, behavior while lacking the virtuous heart behind it. And he uses all of this as a way to get at kind of an internal ethic, if you will. Yep. Um, but even so, I just wanted to read that kind of like anchoring a little bit in some of the stuff he was saying. But I did want to back up a bit um, because he does seem to assume uh, certain things about the way many of the ancients viewed virtue. And so, you know, Trevor mentioned Aristotle, I think also, uh, and, and Ambrose seems to really focus a lot on the Stoics. And I do have to admit, when I read, you know, so many of the Early Christian theologians we've read were so influenced by the Stoics. But to understand virtue from a Stoic perception, you need to, you know, everybody out there needs to not think of virtue as distinctly moral behavior, the way people think of it today. Virtue has to do with purpose. That's right. So yeah. if you like, so, so virtue is something anything can have. A virtuous chair is one that holds a person up that a person can sit in and it won't break or, and of course, the more comfortable it is, presumably the more virtuous the chair is. And insofar as it's, it doesn't fulfill its job, like what it was intended for, then it becomes vicious or it has vice. Um, so a table that, uh, that ha is solidly rooted on the ground and holds things up virtuous, but if it's missing a leg or if it wobbles, it becomes vicious. Uh, you know, for uh, I'm a big guy. I've mentioned that before on this podcast. I'm keenly aware of vicious chairs because if I sit in a certain kind of chair that doesn't hold up a person of my size, it, you know, falls apart. I'm very concerned about such things. Um, the Stoics then applied that principle to humanity and asked the question, what is our purpose? To what end were human beings made? Which for me, this is in my wheelhouse. I feel like... I feel like people increase just don't talk enough about 
uh, human telos anymore. And I think I think that's largely rooted in the fact that that it's so tied to religion and so many thinkers just want to abandon religion as kind of any kind of an impetus for moral philosophy. Um, because without without a God, it's hard to identify a real telos or an objective telos. Um, but the, the Stoics believed that we had a telos, that is, we had an end or a purpose for which each of us were made. And humanity has an end or a purpose for which they're made. And then humanity and human beings are virtuous to the degree to which they, they actually fulfill that purpose. And the virtues, in essence, are the things we need to do to fulfill the purpose. And the ancient world identified four virtues, which Ambrose looks into, which include um, justice, prudence, fortitude, and um, wait, justice, prudence, fortitude, and temperance. Um, so justice, of course, in short, um, being uh, fair and equitable in your dealings. Uh, and um, prudence means making wise decisions. Uh, uh, fortitude is basically being courageous, although all of these have nuances to them that yep. Rose explores. And then the fourth one being uh, temperance, that is self-control in what you partake of. Now, the early Christian, the, the early church will add three, what they call theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and love, which of course they lift from 1 Corinthians, Paul's discourse on on those things. So you have to keep those in mind in the layout of his work. That's what he's doing is he's taking a look at these virtues and he's asking the question, how does a Christian like basically live out these virtues? Yeah, I think that's, I think that, so, yeah, no, that was, that was spot on. Penny. <laughs> Inter interruptions. <laughs> the dog. <laughs> Golly, Penny. Yeah, well, I'm interrupting also, this podcast for five years. <laughs> also, in the ancient world, just as a, I don't know, to add something while the dog barks, the, you know, of course, they believed that sort of the, the polis, the city, which ends up being kind of like our state or government, was, could also exhibit the virtues that sort of the people had in it. So, yeah, you got this really bottom-up structure um, from sort of your every... It goes all the way from your everyday practices all the way toward the correct functioning of the whole entire society. And yeah, that was a very good point to bring up the, the telos because it was all rooted in telos. Like, uh, I think Aristotle thinks, like, the political life is, like, the, the church the mature humans like life eventually, like once you've reached maturity, like that's really, that's really the life you ought to be living um, is involved in politics, which is kind of interesting, but, um, but yeah, but it was all based on the idea that there was something distinct about humans and that also that was what gave them their end. At least that's sort of how uh, Aristotle would talk about it. 
Well, and, and, and interestingly, that like so from the ancient perspective, none of us are in a sense fully human <laughs> um, until we have acquired perfect virtue, which for Augustine um, and to some extent as well, I think Ambrose was not something you achieved until the eschaton, until the end of life. So there was a sense in which all of us were living uh, living less than fully of what we were capable of, mm-hmm. um, and so what what learning virtue, what being taught virtue did was essentially um, help you become that which you were intended to be. And then the Christian said this was because of sin, um, that sin coming into the world, you know, was was the reason that we weren't born knowing how to be most fully human. Um, and so, I mean, this is also going back to the doctrine of grace and the, the discussion of grace. What Augustine said was, it, you know, he tended to think that the ancients uh, the, 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 or the pagan philosophers did not talk enough about the failure of will and the inability of humans uh, to achieve this on their own accord. Um, and so he, he, he like laid heavy emphasis on um, the, the repair that needs to happen to the will. Um, and so, I mean, Augustine is in this same line, but he says, hey, you've gotten a lot of stuff right. And we do need to have these virtues, but they need to be he would say they need to be grounded in love. Um, and that is the love of God, which comes to us through the Holy Spirit, which also unlocks this ability of us to actually achieve that which is good, which are the um the virtues. Um, and I, uh, so, uh, one other side point that I wanted to make that, uh, so I was, I pulled up the Latin for this. Just interestingly, what is translated as seemly is the word for the simple word for beautiful pul- uh, pulcher. Um, but the word for virtue, um, is, is, uh, honestus. So like where we get our word honest, um, which in, is of course noble that but that's exactly right what's interesting for what the whole project of christianity and cicero here or and not cicero decidedly not cicero uh, but but ambrose and the christian project was anybody could become noble right so in 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 cicero's mind you had to have the right kind of education and the right kind of status to be taught virtue what what ambrose and christianity basically said was you come to church and you can learn virtue you don't need to be of the elite class um in order to learn this thing that is virtue so i think that's one one thing that shouldn't be overlooked is is he basically says all the rich and poor you know he's reading paul as well reading acts reading um uh, uh, galatians and such like anybody um can be uh noble Anyone can be honestus, um, and it you do, like you can learn all these things through the scripture. So I think that you know, in in defense of of Ambrose, in, in a sense, um, he does think that we can all achieve this. Um, and uh, but that said, I think we should also keep in mind that that like uh, you know, like I say, that for Augustine, I think the emphasis on grace is necessary. But I'll I'll let you respond to that. Oh yeah, and well, that just reminds me of another note, which is. A thing that is unique in virtue ethics is that there's often amongst the virtue uh, ethicist theorists, they'll argue about what they call a chief virtue, as in they, it's it's a very hotly debated thing. Some people just think the virtues are completely independent of each other and or like somewhat dependent on each other, but can in general, you can have one without having the other. But of course, Aristotle, uh, I might be getting this wrong, but my my memory of it is that Aristotle 
believed that wisdom was the chief virtue, um, that it was one of the intellectual virtues, I believe. But the idea was that if you had, if you had wisdom, you sort of automatically got the rest. And then of course, in, um, many different Christian teachings that are still hooked up to virtue ethics, um, love is the chief. So that that's sort of what was unique about Christianity, which is opposed to just to give a third example, like Ayn Rand, who says <laughs> the chief virtue is, um, rational self-interest or something like that <laughs> i think it's self-interest she says is literally the chief virtue but that would be so, so awesome but... that would be so awesome <laughs> if it was it would be so easy to become virtuous <laughs> yeah so well and that was why i brought it up because of what chad said about like who who could be you know who can gain these virtues it's sort of like who could become noble in the state well it's like on aristotle it was supposedly wisdom so he he really thought like that was what you needed to be doing all day was like exercising your faculty of reason which of course we now know is like not um not something that necessarily is doled out equally just merely by either genetics or environment or both um but then also um the 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 idea of love though that is like certainly a uniting is a more of a uniting virtue um and weirdly, you might you might <laughs> you might say Ayn Rand makes it also easy, but um, but uh, yeah, but maybe not not at the cost of what <laughs> of what making self interest be your chief virtue is. But anyway, yeah, that that is just a distinct thing about uh, virtue ethics is that there is a uniting one. So if you have love, it at least makes it possible or enables you to sort of have the others. Um, uh, yeah, which is, which is a cool, um, cool idea, but also seems true. There's good, there's good arguments out there as well. Yeah. Um, one, uh, one, thing I, one thing actually I would add to that, just thinking of something you said there, Trevor, about, uh, I believe um, that uh, Ambrose actually says that Aristotle uh, believed that wisdom or knowledge was the highest virtue <clears throat> it's been so long since i've read my aristotle but if i'm not mistaken it's something along the line well actually here's the thing i mean he he did actually say that i read it last night but as i was thinking about aristotle that did kind of i found that a bit perplexing because there is a dialogue and i don't remember which one play one of plato's dialogues where he argues that knowledge is the chief virtue because once we had knowledge we would all the other like we would basically be virtuous in every other aspect of life like because he basically says virtue is always going to be what is best for us and you would be foolish to ever do something that wasn't in your best interest so all you needed to do know, to have was knowledge so that you could know what was in your best interest and then you would just do that but aristotle actually does challenge that by pointing out that which and this is obvious that people often know what is best for them and still don't make the best choice, right? And anybody yeah. who is a uh, anybody who struggles with any kind of addiction knows that to be true. I, I don't think there's an addict in the world who thinks that taking another drink or taking another bite or taking another hit is in their best interest. Um, they all know what's the right course and right action, but they have a hard time doing it. I remember all. I just remember Aristotle in his ethics distinctly 
reacting against Plato on that. Um, so it was just something I, I thought of. The other thing that I was uh, going to ask you, Trevor, um, mm-hmm. is you've mentioned virtue ethics. And just so everybody out there knows, like virtue ethics as opposed to, uh, how would you describe it? Deontology or deontological ethics? Or no, yeah. sorry, and, and utilitarian, consequentially. Sorry, yeah. yeah. To use, to use, sorry. Yeah, no. Virtue ethics versus utilitarian ethics. Um, uh, I, a couple of things. One is kind of a question for, I guess it could be either of you, but there did come a moment in my reading last night where Ambrose a couple of times asserts that what is virtuous is what is useful. Um, is what is, you know, uh, yep. so basically it's like he conflates utilitarianism with virtue ethics or says at least that the conclusion should come to the exact same, which is kind of what Plato was arguing in that dialogue that I was just mentioning. But I'm just curious, where do you guys land on the utilitarian virtue ethics and uh, question? Um, do you think they're the same? Is it half and half? And if so, how do you distinguish which half or do you guys favor one over the other? Uh, okay. So the way I would, the way I would like to cut it up is, yeah, you have duty-based ethics and that, which would be deontology. Then you have, um, consequentialist ethics, utilitarian ethics being a subset of the consequentialist ethics. And then, and then you have virtue. And so this is what I kind of want to say. Wait, real quick. So you would distinguish virtue ethics from duty-based ethics? Correct. But oh, let me, but let me be clear about something. So here's, here's one way to boringly say they're all different. <laughs> let me give an, let me give an analysis of right action. Uh, for subject S, uh, action X is right. If, and only if, and now fill in the blank, it X has, or S has a duty to do X, uh, X produces the right consequences or X is what a virtuous person would do. Okay, so those would be the way to like boringly give a formula that makes them all sound super different. But as anyone who studies ethics knows, that is sort of false in a lot of ways in the sense that though you can give an analysis of right action that seems to make them all distinct ways of viewing what actions are correct, they're they're not quite... Um, they're not quite as neat and separated um, merely because you can give an analysis of right action in terms of them. So and what I mean by that is just take the example of giving an analysis of right action by what the virtuous person will do. Well, now what you're already building into the virtuous person, though, is going to be things you value, um, right? Like these character traits. But why do you value those character traits? Is it in part because of some of the consequences that they result in? Yes. Um, then do you kind of think you have a duty to do some of those things because of the better consequences? Well, yeah, for some of them, maybe not for all, but yeah. So you you instantly get into this like really messy territory and people who firmly hold to one of those three views often say it this way. The consequentialists say this, we can consequentialize any other ethical view so don't mess with us (laughs) like if you try to argue with us we'll just find a way to consequentialize your view um the duty-based people kind of often think they can just 
create a duty-based version of everyone else's view, especially with the Kantians, because they're sort of the, I think, the primary duty-based people alive today. And the virtue at this is, though, this is sort of, this is sort of our thing too, is like, we can virtue ethic anything. Like we can make, we can sort of just turn any like ethical system into a virtue ethic. Um, and thus sort of the, in, in a way, this is kind of the debate. Are you consequentializing virtue ethics or virtue ethicing consequentialism? Because those, because those two are like, I think the primary competitors, um, and then duty-based ethics just kind of sits somewhere in the middle because it's probably like either a good way of getting the consequences or it's a good way of distinguishing the virtuous person. But um, it's like they're good rules of thumb, that is, the duties. But the if you are competing those two against each other, you can sort of just describe one in terms of the other, vice versa. And I, I almost wonder if it's more of a if it's more of just a way of viewing it, then it is a real distinction because we of course care about consequences. If we didn't at all, we couldn't really distinguish, I think the actions themselves, but then we also moral, morally evaluate people. And guess what? Sometimes the consequences of their actions, we actually don't think reflect on the moral value of the person. Like if someone accidentally does something, it's completely by accident, but it has horrible consequences. We just obviously don't judge that person as a moral monster if they didn't do it intentionally. <laughs> so there's ways in which obviously consequences come apart from uh, evaluating an agent as like morally good or bad and evaluating an action as morally good or bad. So this is why I just, my answer to this is it's a mess and I have no idea what the right answer is, but we of course care about consequences, but I think we should also care about virtuous people. Um, that's so interesting, Trevor. I did not actually, I mean, I certainly have read uh, 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 books on deontological ethics or the embrace of deontological ethic and tons on virtue ethics. I don't know why I never really looked at those as two separate categories. That was pretty helpful uh, distinction. Um, uh, one thing I, you know, it, this is a question that has been lingering in my mind because for the longest time, I rejected consequentialist ethics in general. Um, and I did it, I think, largely because, uh, you know, uh, Trevor, you just made a comment about how obviously when somebody is well-intentioned and a good person, they make a choice that has bad consequences but was well-meaning. We don't uh, we don't describe them as a moral monster. But I feel like at least in the last 10 years or so in America, that is precisely what people tend to do like you see people trying i think really hard to, to discern and do what is the moral thing and it has even if it's like not terrible consequences or consequences that might be bad but are maybe tenuously connected to what they what they did people just seem to ascribe the worst uh, moral assessment of individuals so i was kind of abandoning consequentialist ethics i think largely due to that. But then I ran into problems as I was kind of thinking through thought experiments on getting rid of consequentialist, uh, the, the consequences at all, like consequences obviously matter. So I've been really wrestling with how do I define what is and is not moral or what makes a person a moral person, you know, or, I mean, obviously, I, I mean, as a Christian, I go to the scripture and the scripture tells me 
what is right and what is wrong and and shows me scenarios in which to kind of work those things out. But I'm just thinking at a philosophical level, if I'm trying to understand um, what are the things that make something a moral choice, that's kind of where I'm getting at. So so I've been okay. really, I, I really do feel like culturally people are waiting to pounce and destroy anybody for the slightest mishap in spite of their moral feelings. Well, uh, no, that's, that's a good point uh, and fairly taken. I was kind of more, I was saying obviously in the sense that like what's reflected more by our actual courts rather than the court of public opinion, which is definitely not as, uh, yeah, definitely not as um, forgiving or understanding for that matter. But, uh, but yeah, I think like maybe another way to put it because how we judge people in our society is probably riddled by also like social media and other issues that we could get into. But maybe like, if you just think of someone, you know, I mean, if they just come over to your house and like accidentally ruin something that was precious to you, but it was completely by accident, you just won't morally judge them for it versus the person who stares you directly in the eye while they just destroy your favorite book or whatever right and says screw you while they do it you know i guess that's all i was trying i was trying to bring up that sort of obvious difference um well yeah so we need to move on from this i'm gonna need to i'm gonna need to go pretty soon um and and because i i gotta take care of my son uh but um i wanted to talk about his argument for the release of slaves at some point um but um could I don't know. I had next time as I didn't read it. <laughs> well, it's it's pretty short. Um, okay. It just was, it just was interesting. Um, I would also say I prefer virtue theory just because I think that the language that we use matters. And the problem of using value, which is how a lot of people talk about it, is you end up having the same sort of uh, calculus that you might for items um, and things that you could buy and sell. Um, and at least on the virtue, at least the way that people use the language of virtue theory, um, it, it, it tends to um, elevate um, rather than make things mundane. And in my mind, that's a that's a good way to go about it, um, at least to start. Um, and I don't know, I, I sort of like, at least like I said, on a purely like linguistic level, um, value um, is, is I think, maybe already starting us off on the wrong foot. Yeah, just as a quick follow-up to that, chat, I know you need to get going, but very quick follow-up is, that's a very good point. I think it's all the, it's important to talk about like the language you use matters. And I think one of the superior things about virtue ethics is it's also readily applicable, easily understandable. And even if you think consequentialism is the true view, there are many consequentialists out there who think they're kind of, some people call them rule consequentialists, but really they're kind of virtue ethic consequentialists because they think what you need to give people is just sort of a model to go by and that'll get you the best consequences. And thus, it to me, it just seems like virtue ethics in terms of being an actual way of life type philosophy, rather than just like, as you're saying, a, a weird calculus that you could never actually apply or live by, um, it, virtue ethics ends up just sort of being the only way to go. I don't really even see how you can like teach any of the other ethics in like a, in any sort of meaningful or useful sense. <laughs> but anyway, that was my follow up. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's fair. Well, I think that's fair. I also think that the Protestant Reformation did a lot to undercut um, the sort of habituation and virtue uh, that was so predominant in Aristotle and Aquinas. So I think there's an interesting conversation to be had about how virtue theory fits um, with within the language of like the Reformation. Um, simo justus et peccator seems to mean that you can make no progress in virtue. Um, and if that's the case, then it seems like either uh, Luther has to be right or um, – or we should be more um, uh, like Aristotomists, um, and if that if that's the case, you know your your sort of outlook looks very different. Um, anyway, I just think that's sort of it's it's an interesting way in which continuing to tell someone you've made no progress, you are just a sinner, um, kind of undercuts uh, the um, undercuts the process of of habituating a virtue. Agreed. That would be um, cool. Someday, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I may, I, may I, I think I've got Philip Carey who's going to come on the podcast, um, and he's he's thought a little bit about these things, um, so um, we'll we'll see if, if if that works out. But uh, yeah, um, okay. So the argument for slavery it's just pretty short, um, just as a kind of comparison, right? Uh, argument uh, for freeing slaves, right? Because you just said argument for slavery. Oh, yeah. Argument concerning slavery <laughs> uh, for freeing slaves. Um, it's interesting. He's following Cicero fairly point by point. Cicero talks about freeing people who have been captive, uh, but doesn't actually talk about freeing, quote, slaves and from servitude, uh, which is the move um, at the linguistic level um, that Ambrose makes. Now, um, Ambrose does not make an argument for um, abolishing the whole institution of slavery in the same way that, uh, for instance, Gregory of Nyssa does, which is one of the most compelling arguments for um, the abolition of slavery in the ancient world. Uh, but Ambrose gives us hints. Um, so this is Book 2, Chapter 15, uh, Paragraph 70 um, in the in the. Um, collection i'm using it's on page 54 the post nicene fathers book um but he says the highest kind of liberality is to redeem captives um to save them from the hands of their enemies to snatch men from death and most of all women from shame to restore children to their parents parents to their children and to give back a citizen to his country okay so that sounds pretty much like actually pretty close well cicero doesn't go into that detail um in deo east but he does sort of talk about buying a captive back but he goes on and he says uh, a little bit further down, yet there were some who would have been sent back into slavery, those whom the church had redeemed. They themselves were harder than slavery itself to look askance at another's mercy. Um, if they themselves had come to slavery, they would be slaves freely. If they had been sold, they would not refuse the service of slavery. I, I, this gets a little complicated, um, but I just thought it was interesting to say um, – uh, uh, and then he goes to, then the next paragraph, it, it is then a special quality of liberality to redeem captives, um, to show mercy. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, so there is a place for, he's beginning to say, Hey, look, Christians, if they want to be liberal, they need, that is, if they want to be, um, generous, if they want to be good to their fellow man, they will not keep people in captivity. And he, he does talk about slavery as well um, and, and freeing the slaves. So 
you know, it's not, he doesn't make the case like the sort of image of God case that we make. Um, and even um, Gregory of Nyssa starts to say, what would it even mean for there to be a master and a servant? Um, how could one man be over another if all are created by God? More like the language that we're used to using. But it is beginning to say, hey, look, there is there is a, a need in the church to buy back captives and to re redeem people, to, to release them. Um, now, he says some other things that would be sort of questionable about slavery. Like in one place, he says Joseph was in slavery, but that doesn't mean Joseph was a bad man um, just because he was a slave. So not all slavery is bad is kind of the argument he makes. Um, well, or at least followed. <laughs> yeah, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a weird argument where I can see it's been a while since I've read a logic book, but I'm pretty sure that that is not a valid argument. <laughs> yeah. Um, I th uh, yeah. Um, but anyway, um, he has some weird things about how he understands slavery there. But I just think it's worth pointing out that, that it's not as if Christians have gone have, – have, were unconcerned with this question. Um, and like I said, I, you know, I can wish that he had uh, – uh, had said it in more absolute terms, but it is there. Thanks for listening to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim, um, and please do find our Patreon account and support us if you wouldn't mind, as this is the time of year our costs are coming due. Uh, but this has been the end of this week. Look out for us next week as we will have our conversation on Gregory of Nyssa.